Welcome to ASRM Today, a podcast that takes a deeper dive into the current topics in reproductive medicine. I am Jeffrey Hayes, and today on the show, we are talking PGT with Dr. James Griffo. Dr. Griffo is Professor OBGYN at NYU LMC, Program Director, NYU Langone Prelude Fertility Center, Division Director of REI at NYU LMC, and Chief Executive Physician of Inception Fertility. Dr. Griffo, welcome to ASRM today. Thank you very much. Uh, this, of course, is a very large topic, and, and our time will cover as much uh, uh, as possible, but I'd like to start out with explaining the, dif- the differences uh, in PGTA, PGTM, and PGTSR. So PGTA is pre-implantation genetic testing for aneuploidy, looking for chromosomally abnormal embryos, because it's very clear that women make a lot of abnormal embryos. And as women get older, the percentage of them change dramatically, which is the reason for the decline in fertility as women age, the reason for increased miscarriage rates as women age, and the reason for the increased risk of Down syndrome or other chromosomal abnormalities at amniocentesis as women age. PGTM, monogenic disease, looks at a specific mutation that are disease causing. These can be autosomal dominant and you know, 50% of the embryos will have them if one of the couple, uh, individuals in the couple have it. Um, most of what we do is recessive. So two copies, one from mom, one from dad. Um, and we can do single gene testing for mutations for things such as, you know, sickle cell, cystic fibrosis, um, the Ashkenazi uh, panel genes. That, that now we can do about 502 different, <laughs> different mutations. If, if there's a mutation and we know the genetics of it, we can pretty much have a test built and, and look for any monogenic disease. PGTSR, pre-implantation genetic for uh, structural rearrangements is specifically for the group of patients who have recurrent miscarriage due to unbalanced gametes. Either mom or dad has an unbalanced gamete and they are balanced, but they're, they can make an unbalanced sperm or egg. And when those make embryos, they have a high rate of miscarriage. These patients often present with a history of recurrent miscarriage and then have karyotypes done and are diagnosed. And we can use PGT to diagnose these structural rearrangements and put back balanced embryos and reduce their miscarriage risk. So that, that's, those are all the topics that we, we can use PGT for. It's been around a long time. And the first PGT success was done by Handyside and Mark Hughes was part of that, that in the world. In the United States, I, I actually did the first successful embryo biopsy uh, for uh, at, when I was at Cornell. And that was for a woman who was at risk for passing on hemophilia to her child. And that baby was born in 1992. It was very primitive back then. And over the years, we've evolved uh, to focus more and more on the aneuploidy because that seems to be the biggest problem. Selecting embryos that are chromosomally healthy is why uh, IVF fails and morphology will predict a lot of the aneuploidies uh, to some extent, but not, not completely. And, and actually screening the embryo by taking cells from it is the most reliable method to assure that you're putting back a euploid embryo. In our experience, we have never seen a pregnancy from an aneuploid embryo. I think that's a point of great controversy. 
Many people have said aneuploid embryos make babies. I don't know what data they're looking at. I'm, I'm aware of 126 transferred aneuploid embryos that have made nothing but miscarriages and not one baby that was healthy. You, I, those are data I trust. Those are data I've actually seen the data. I, I know there are reports of abnormal embryos making pregnancies, but I think that gets confused by the mosaicism piece that was really, we didn't understand. It took a long time and it really was next generation sequencing that helped us sort that out. And once we did, we, what we realized is there's no such thing as a normal embryo. Every embryo has abnormal cells. And as long as the abnormal cells are less than 20%, the next generation sequencing platform calls that embryo euploid. And when we transfer euploid embryos, depending on the quality, we'll get somewhere around 65% implantation ongoing pregnancy rate. Clearly, morphology plays a role too. Uh, poor quality embryos have a lower implantation rate with euploid embryos, but that's kind of the average of all the ones we've transferred, 65% baby rate and a much lower miscarriage rate. If you select by morphology, the age of the patient matters. Um, younger women do much better with single embryo transfer morphologically selected, and, and those numbers can approach the success rates of a euploid embryo transfer. They will never match the performance in miscarriage. Miscarriages are always higher with unselected embryos. That, that is the main and best advantage of PGT testing is reducing the miscarriage risk. And, and it's often not talked about, not discussed, and you know, patient outcomes matter, and that's a bad outcome. Doing IVF to get a miscarriage, having frozen eggs in the freezer for 10 years to get a miscarriage is not really the best we can do for patients. I think most of the controversy relies around, does the biopsy harm the embryo? And then how accurate is the test? And the test is very accurate. Um, we've published error rates less than 1%. There's no such thing as 100%. We've also published extensively now on, on mosaicism, that embryos that have more than 20% abnormal cells have reproductive potential. Um, when they have greater than 80%, abnormal cells. Those are called aneuploid. I've just told you we've transferred 126 of them. And there's no babies from them. So I think most of the confusion comes from the mosaic embryos. And we've now even stratified mosaic embryos based on the level of mosaicism. So if it's 20 to 40% mosaic, and it's only a portion of a chromosome, not the whole chromosome. So 20 to 40% of the cells have a piece of a chromosome missing in that embryo, those embryos perform almost as well as euploid embryos, about 60% implantation rate, about 15% miscarriage rate, not very different than, than euploid embryos. So a segmental low-level mosaic is a, a candidate for transfer. Problem is once a patient knows it's mosaic, it causes all kinds of anxiety and requires extra testing, but it's worth it because those embryos have very high performance uh, and healthy babies are born from them. And all of our mosaic experience, none of the babies have been born with disease. And no amnios have shown mosaicism, that the embryo corrects itself. If you have a low-level whole chromosome mosaic, so in a percentage of the cells, 20 to 40% of the cells, a whole chromosome is missing, those embryos perform less well. About 45% of them make a baby and about 20% of them, 25% of them miscarry. So those embryos don't have the same reproductive potential. But again, those embryos make healthy babies when they do. It's just they don't do it as, as much. When you have high-level mosaicism, so 60 to 80% um, mosaic, 
segmentals do quite well still. They about 50% of them can make a baby and they miscarry about 20%. But it's the whole chromosome high-level mosaics that do so poorly. About 7% of them make a baby after about a 70% miscarriage risk. Most patients are not too keen to transfer those embryos. But sometimes that's all a patient has, they will. I think that's the source of most of the controversy is the lack of understanding of mosaicism and also the uh, inability of some labs to want to report it. And that's created a lot of the controversy. I think a lot of the people who say abnormal embryos make pregnancies have transferred mosaic embryos and they haven't transferred aneuploid embryos though. Uh, so that, that's the source, source of confusion. There've been many randomized controlled trials and you can find as many on the side of supporting PGT as you can on the side of saying it doesn't work. Except any of the randomized controlled trials that say PGT doesn't work, no one has evaluated the miscarriage risk. And in all of them, there are statistically more miscarriages in non-selected embryos. And that doesn't get counted as success for some reason I don't understand. There was a recent randomized controlled trial, which is actually a very poorly done randomized controlled trial if you're trying to compare PGT to morphologic selection. It was done in, in China. It was a multi-center. The design was excellent, except for one fact. They only biopsied three of the embryos. If you're using a select, selection tool and you're only biopsying part of the selection, and then you're comparing it to morphologically selected and transferring three embryos one at a time in the group that's unselected and only transferring euploid embryos, you're going to transfer fewer embryos because you're going to find a lot of aneuploid embryos you don't transfer. They didn't transfer mosaic embryos. And despite that design failure, because you really should have biopsied all the embryos, if you really want to look at performance, real-life performance, how much do you help a patient? You biopsy all our embryos, you select only euploids for transfer, and you do what, you, what, what PGT does. You get the patient to a successful transfer sooner. You do a fewer uh, transfers that won't get a patient pregnant or fewer that will make them a miscarriage and waste three months of time, which for my average age patient is a big deal, not to mention the heartache. So even in this study, they showed a statistically higher implantation rate, a statistically lower miscarriage rate. And one thing they didn't even mention, uh, it's there in the fine print, but no one talks about it in any discussion. Six pregnancies were terminated in this group of patients who had, were, had unselected embryos, non-biopsied embryos, to one patient in the PGT group. Six-fold increased risk of getting to 16 weeks and terminating pregnancy. That is a huge advantage that I have seen personally in our PGT patients. We see fewer terminated pregnancies. It's a fact that people don't discuss. You know, a 40-year-old woman, if you look at all the things you could find at amniocentesis in a pregnancy, 2% of those patients get 16 weeks pregnant and, and have to terminate a pregnancy if you haven't selected embryos. So I, I think a lot of the confusion is, you know, what you're actually trying to avoid by not doing PGT. I think there's a lot of people who feel it hurts the embryo, but in good studies of cl clinics that do it, um, there's, there's been plenty of studies showing that biopsying the embryo doesn't harm it. And the best studies that were done Actually, Richard Scott's group did a, a randomized, well, actually, they did a blinded non-selection study multi-centered. So in other words, they biopsied all embryos. They froze them all. They selected only on morphology. And then after they had the results of pregnancies, did they look back and ask, how many aneuploid embryos made a baby? 
And there were 102 aneuploid embryos in that study. 40%, uh, there were 40% of them that made a biochemical pregnancy, 24% miscarried, and 0% made a baby. So that's 102 futile transfers that could have been avoided by trusting this assay. Is there a specific number that you have found in your research through reading randomized control, control trials, is, is, there, is there a specific number that legitimizes the study? I mean, you just mentioned we've gone from one study that wasn't so great that had a really low number to another study that had over so 100. The, the STAR trial, they biopsied all, all embryos and, and transferred knowing, knowing the result. The problem with the STAR trial is when you looked at the performance of the individual labs, there was a wide range of success with a with a euploid embryo, meaning that there were qualitative differences in the labs. And so if you're going to randomize to labs that aren't equal, you're not going to get, you're, you're not measuring whether PGT works, you're measuring that some labs are better than others. And that's just a fact of life. If, if you haven't done a large volume of PGT and your embryologists don't biopsy embryos routinely, there's a skill set that needs to be there uh, in order to do it well. And I think that's another undiscussed fact that some labs don't do it as well. And if they're not doing a critical volume, they're not going to stay practiced enough to do as well. And you see the same thing in any surgical field. You, you look at low volume surgeons versus high volume surgeons, and you see the high volume surgeons have better outcomes because it's a skill and it's a skill you got to practice. And, you know, I think there are some embryos that are harmed. It's just that the percentage is so tiny, you can't measure it. <laughs> And the benefit is so great that you see it. So in a, in a lab where you're, you're randomizing in a single lab or you're doing a non-selection study in a single lab where all the embryos are treated the same, you see this, I mean, 312 embryos were transferred that were called euploid and 202 pregnancies, babies resulted, 65% baby rate. And 102 aneuploid embryos were transferred and got no babies. Uh, you, you can't tell me that wasn't successful. The miscarriage risk, was 30% in the, the unselected embryos, the non-biopsied embryos, and 7% in the biopsied embryos. The, the, that's a big delta of patients who didn't lose three months, of patients who didn't have a futile transfer. And, and again, that never gets evaluated. All they look at is, is implantation. Uh, and even implantation, if you look at it carefully and properly, there's superior implantation of euploid embryos over unselected embryos in every study. So I, I don't understand what the debate is. I think a lot of it is our clinics are uncomfortable with it. I think clinics don't ha haven't done enough volume with it so that they're afraid to, you know, have their learning curve on, on their patients, which I understand and, and respect. But to, to say that 40% of our embryos that we don't transfer can make babies, and that's been said publicly about my work, totally factually incorrect, not, not true. Um, but but said in an international webinar, <laughs> um, you know, a little bit wrong, but it is it is what it is. Uh, there's just a lot of emotion around this topic, and I, I don't I don't fully understand it. And yes, if you quote this last paper, which you if you analyze the data, even though they only biopsy three embryos, you analyze the data, you can prove that PGT works. They had a statistically higher implantation rate with euploid embryos than they did with unselected embryos. That means it works as a selection tool because that's what it is, a selection tool. It doesn't make a higher pregnancy rate. I think that's part of the confusion. If, if the euploid embryo is there, if you put it back on day three or day five, or you freeze it first, 
and you put back that embryo, you're going to get it. So the only way you could truly study this is in the same lab, biopsy all embryos, do a non-selection study transferring all embryos, and then you could see actually what the implantation rate would be with euploid embryos versus aneuploid embryos, and you'd get the same number of babies if you just had controls where you froze everything and transferred the embryos one at a time. But the problem is no one takes into account the fact that patients get exhausted, that failed cycles, they, they stop treatment. People criticize people like me because they say we make more money by doing PGT. We don't. We do less cycles. We don't get paid the, the PGT money. It goes to a lab. We get patients to donor egg faster or stopping faster because they can't make a euploid embryo. We don't do as many DNCs that you get paid for. We don't. <laughs> so, I mean, the criticism too, that we're, we're making more money by doing this is false. Um, but it, I've heard it publicly said in numerous occasions. So it's all about outcomes. That's why we do it. Better outcomes. I don't miss getting those 16 weeks calls and having to hear about a patient have to terminate their pregnancy. I don't mind doing fewer DNCs. It's my, my least favorite thing to do. Uh, for a miscarriage. It's my least favorite thing to talk to a patient after miscarriage because I feel bad for them and they feel bad. And we have a tool that works to, to reduce that risk. And face it, our patients are getting older and it's going to be, there's not a study that hasn't shown it working in older patients. The big debate is around the younger patients, but it even works there in our hands and in non-selection studies. But it is, it is what it is. It's a debate that will go on, I think, I, I just think there are believers and non-believers. You know, the earth isn't flat. It really works. <laughs> Don't you know it's burrito shaped? It's, it's, yeah, it's, yeah. That's, been, that's been clearly, I don't understand why people don't think it's burrito shaped. <laughs> My guest today is Dr. James Griffith. We're talking uh, all things PGT. I want to step back for a moment with you because this is now tradition on the show with, with all first time guests. You had a breakthrough back in 92 I'm curious what led you into this field? What, what seeded the interest to get into reproductive medicine? So I was very interested in genetics. I had training in molecular biology. I did a biochemistry PhD in biochemistry and did a molecular biologic technology. Actually, it was related to a viral disease. It was actually related to how poliovirus inactivated the cell to make it a poliovirus factory. It was pretty, pretty interesting stuff. But I was very interested and I saw genetics as the future. And when I started rotating through medical school and saw all these older women miscarrying and, and you know, realized that we could prevent genetic disease by looking at the embryo rather than waiting till they're 16 weeks pregnant, the technology was available um, at that time. It was very primitive. And so I, I decided to go into OBGYN and you know, my first month as a resident at Cornell I mean, I saw three women over the age of 40 have their first baby. And it was pretty obvious that older women were going to be having babies. In 1984, when I started, the average age of first birth was 19. In 2017, the CDC said it was going to be, it was, two, uh, uh, sorry, 26. It had risen seven years. 300,000 years ago, when Homo sapiens started, it was about 13. So we went 300,000 years, we went six years from 13 to 19. In the last 30 years, we went from 19 to 27, except not where I work. In New York City, it's mid-30s, late-30s. It's average age for first birth now. And that's going to continue to, that, to trend. And what's very clear, even in the 80s, you could see, you look at Down syndrome risk being 1 in 100 at 40 and 1 in 1250 at 25. It was pretty apparent to me that aneuploidy was the cause of the age-related 
decline in fertility and the higher miscarriage rate because miscarriages were chromosomally abnormal. It took us till 2010 to publish the paper that said aneuploidy is the cause, the major cause of infertility as women get, get older. So selecting embryos was going to be the tool. And it was pretty clear. So that's why I started in mice in 1986. I spent four years, finally got permission to do it in human. We were denied permission until the Brits were successful. We were ready to go. Then we had the first successful PGTM delivery in the United States. And, you know, we, we, I've spent my whole career focusing on finding better ways. And look, it was very primitive in the early days and didn't work as well. And now with next generation sequencing, with vitrification, with blastocyst, biopsy, trophectoderm biopsy, it, it's become very, very efficient and it's routinely offered to our patients. But I, I don't talk our patients into it. I show them the data. And 90% of them, when they see the data, say, why wouldn't I do this? And they do it. And, and so, um, but I, I think there's still a lot of resistance to it in our field. And I, I don't know why. Um, the data is, if you look at experienced clinics that have the kind of numbers that, that we have in other clinics like you know, Richard Scott's and Schoolcraft's clinics who are all committed to PGTM or PGTA, we have very similar data with euploid embryos and we have less miscarriages because of it. And, and that's the major factor. Time to getting the patient pregnant, you, you save a lot of time and you save a lot of grief, miscarriage, terminated pregnancies. Is it dramatic? Yes. I mean, it's not every patient, it's not all patients, but it's a large percentage. And as they get older, I mean, 40% of 40-year-old women miscarry when you do a, a fresh transfer or uh, untested embryos. That, that's a pretty high number. With us, it's 10%. That's fourfold lower miscarriage risk. That's big. You know, 1% Down syndrome, <laughs> you know, terminated pregnancy. We're one in 2,000 with euploid embryos. So we lower the risk from a low number to a very low number. Is there a correlation then between your, your talking about you know, how, how currently and in, in, in moving towards the future, more and more uh, people are waiting later in life. You know, by later in life, we're talking 30s, but that's still, like you said, pointed out in the short time span that it's been, it's, it's quite an incredible leap. Of course, a lot of egg freezing procedures, cryopreservation has started to become very popular. What's the correlation? I mean, is there, is there a correlation between, you know, would you, could a person have more success if they freeze their eggs or? or yeah, or, so we're, yeah. we're showing that. We've actually just submitted a paper of 600 transfers from 4,000 elective egg freeze cycles because now younger patients are doing it. And some of the highlights of what we found is that the euploid embryos they get are equivalent to the age at which they froze their eggs. So if you look at data from our IVF clinic, looking at our last six years of data, 6,433 egg retrievals, you know, a 33-year-old woman, the average number of euploid embryos that we get from a cycle is three. A 40-year-old woman, it's 0.96. So they have three, three times fewer embryos at 40. We're using 40-year-old eggs than using 33-year-old eggs. So a lot of women are freezing their eggs now and getting pregnant at 40, maybe for their second baby. That's certainly what we've seen in our, our 600 thaws. And we have over 240 babies from elective cryopreservation patients who are doing fertility preservation. And many of them, it's their, they have the whole family from a batch of frozen eggs. They have two, two babies from it. From, and some are doing more cycles now, knowing that they're going to be having their babies older. And it's more efficient to do your IVF when you're younger than when you're older, knowing they're going to do IVF. Because you know a lot of patients, 
in their late 30s end up doing IVF anyway. So you have frozen eggs from 33, you're going to have a better, better chance. We're also finding young couples coming in and freezing embryos, except freezing tested embryos. They're freezing tested embryos because they want to know how many euploid embryos in the freezer and knowing that approximately three euploid embryos gives a 95% chance of, of a, a, at least one baby, a 44% chance of two, and a 14% chance of three. So they're planning their family by getting euploid embryos in the freezer to use later in the future if they need it uh, when they're older. And many of them are purposely waiting till they're 40 because of career decisions. So yes, we're changing the way people are living their reproductive lives, giving them optionality, not talking them into it, not telling them it's what they should do, just showing them data and they're making their own decisions because people, patients are smart. They read, they understand, they understand science. And when you show them good data, they, they react to it and make decisions around it. So I, I think it's going to be more and more the future of how we protect our species because you know, when evolution designed this system 300,000 years ago, Mother Nature did not expect us to be having our babies in our 40s. We were dead at 25, 300,000 years ago. We just had to have our two or three babies. Incidentally, from 100 eggs, we had our two or three babies. A woman ovulated 100, 120 eggs, you know, when Homo sapiens was first on this earth to have the two or three babies necessary to protect the species from extinction. And the thing about evolution, if something works, it doesn't change. And we are using a 300,000-year-old system to build our families now and wondering why people like me are so busy, why the ASRM is so busy trying to help our infertile population out there, because we've created an evolutionary problem. And now we have fixes for it. We are the evolution of the lack of evolution. We are the adaptation that will keep our species going. So it's kind of the way this has trended. And it's pretty fast, faster than I thought. You know, 30 years ago, I, I expected older women to be having babies, but now in real time, it's really ramped up the last few years. And it's why egg freezing has become much more uh, a practice. This has been an amazing conversation. And I, I, I hate it, but we're out of time. And I, 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 will you please come back so, so we can continue this conversation uh, at a love, later date? Love to. Oh, fantastic. Uh, my guest today has been uh, Dr. James Griffo, we've been talking as much as possible as we could about PGT. Uh, I know obviously there is so much more to get into. Uh, and, and again, Dr. Griffo, thank you so much for being on the program. Thank you. I really appreciate the invitation. Thanks so much. You can subscribe and rate the show through whatever podcatcher that you use. That would be Apple, Google, whatever flavor it is that, that is more comfortable to you please do so. If you have questions for us, please email me at asrm at asrm.org. And until next time, I'm Jeffrey Hayes, and this is ASRM Today. This concludes this episode of ASRM Today. For show notes, author information, and discussions, go to asrmtoday.org. This material is copyrighted by the American Society for Reproductive Medicine and may not be reproduced or used without express consent from ASRM. ASRM Today Series podcasts are supported in part by the ASRM Corporate Member Council. The information and opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of ASRM and its affiliates. These are provided as a source of general information and are not a substitute for consultation with a physician.